Welcome to The Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome back to another episode of The Athletics of Business podcast. I am your host and CEO of the Molitor Group, Ed Molitor. And today we welcome back our special guest, Matt Monahan, who previously joined us on episode 180 with his incredible wife, Suzanne Monahan. And Matt is the CSO, Chief Strategy Officer at Genesis Health. And let me tell you this, to know Matt is to not only love him, but it is to be in the presence of an infectious energy. Something really cool about Matt, he just, it's how he sees the world. He just sees it differently. Where others see dead ends, he sees an opportunity to connect, perfect, and solve. You know, Matt isn't afraid to ask hard questions and challenge the norm. He takes pride in disrupting systems before building them back stronger and more successful than they ever were before. And in this conversation, Matt and I are going to talk about his ability to connect with others to form meaningful relationships. And we'll unpack why the way you treat people matters and how he maintains his core values with the extreme, incredible demands of the business. In this conversation, discover the benefits of saying no in business, right? I think that's something that we all challenge with, like that ability to just say no, even when we know it is the right thing to say. We're going to talk about the power of persistence, the achievement he is most proud of, and how Genesis Health is disrupting healthcare. And Pat's going to share a story from college that absolutely catalyzed his leadership and networking abilities, his journey to starting Genesis Health, and his motivation for starting a podcast. And I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this conversation that I had with Matt Monahan. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today on the Athletics of Business podcast. It's good to see you again, although I much prefer sitting in studio with you there in New York City. Yeah, the studio is much better, but you know, if this is the best we can do, I'm excited to be here. So it's good to see you as well, Ed. Obviously, we had Suzanne and you on the episode number 180 of the Athletics of Business podcast. We had so much fun. But there's a couple of things that we talked about, both on air, off air, at dinner, that I really want to jump into because one of the things I learned very quickly about you, and I'd heard it from, from several folks, but I learned very quickly about you, was your ability to connect with so many different people and create these meaningful relationships, right? And I think that's something that's special. I believe we all have a story and we all have certain points in our life that shape our beliefs and mold who we are. And I mean, if we can jump into the story about you go to college to play soccer. Okay. Now, again, this story was told in episode number 180, but want to jump into it here. You go to play soccer. Tell us about your journey and your transformation from a soccer player to captain of the rugby team, a leader, um, just a connector, all things that are Matt Monahan. Listen, I think first I want to just say it's nice to be unchaperoned on a, on a podcast. So it's nice of you to bring me back without Suzanne. You said that, I didn't. <laughs> when it comes to my transition to soccer, some of that decision was made for me. I got to college, got into preseason, got pretty sick during preseason. And the coach came to me and said, you're going to be cut, you know, and said, we want you to come back and practice in the, in the winter and spring with the team. And so I'd given that a lot of consideration. I ended up like playing with them periodically through the winter. And at some point during that time, I met the rugby guys who were super smart, really good athletes, and just great all-around guys. And it's not something that when you have a rugby team defined, it's not always said that that's the group of smart guys. But we did actually at one point have the highest GPA on campus. 
You bring that up every now and then, then to Suzanne too, don't you? We did. I wasn't helping it, but it was something to me that it was, I, I always considered myself an athlete. I wanted to continue and I really debated, was it going to be worth going back, trying out for the soccer team in probably being third or fourth on the bench and trying to work up from there? Or was it time for a new direction? And it started playing rugby that spring and it developed from there. It was one of the best decisions I made, learned how to be learned how to not even be a leader, just to be like a a vocal member of the team, really like helping work amongst men. Because at that point you're dealing, we were part of the law school um, actually. So we were dealing with anyone from ages 18 to like probably 30. So you're just, it was a different conversations. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was something that I think, you know, kind of set me down the road of, of loving being in any sort of leadership role. And you know, really taught me how to communicate. You saw the best and the worst of people. And it was a lot of fun. It was such a great sport. And I feel very humbled and lucky to have been able to have any opportunity to do it. And I'm really sincere when I ask. It's like, I'm not saying this tongue in cheek. Knowing both sports, knowing the dynamics of, of each group of men. What was it about you that these rugby guys opened their doors to you? What was it that they realized that you were one of them, that you spoke their language, that you walked their walk, that you had their mental and physical toughness? and I won't ask about the fun time. What was it? Because there has to be that trust. I mean, rugby is a sport of trust in going to war with each other, right? Going to battle with each other. You don't often see them open their arms and embrace a soccer player. I mean, we embraced everybody. And I think for us, what was part of what made our team special was they didn't really care where you came from. They cared about how hard you worked, how hard you practiced. And like coming from what I did, I had a really good fitness level. I could run forever. You know, I was pretty fast. I could kick, which, you know, not everybody who came from like a football background could punt or kick or place kick. They would all debate or question my ability to tackle, you know, in a way that they always, it's always comes back to, you know, my ability to tackle. But over time, I learned how to do that. You know, not having played football, that was something that was really hard to learn. You know, putting your head down by someone's knees is an, an acquired taste, I think, for a lot of people. But so that took some time. And, and some would argue it was, it's still taking time. You know, that team, the reason they were so good was, they were just looking for people who were going to be good and played point guard in high school for a period of time. You know, I had played in the center midfield in soccer for a period of time. So I was used to having plays run through me. So when I played, you know, rugby, I was playing fly half. And for those who are familiar with it and those that aren't, you know, that's kind of, I don't want to say quarterback, but you're responsible for initiating and executing on plays. Um, and so understanding the flow of the game and that type of stuff came a little more naturally. So there were parts of this that I was good at and parts of it that I think people would argue that. I continue to improve. And that was the best part. And that's what I got to do even after college when I played for a year or two after. Those things that I learned on the field and that they were willing to accept were things that I was like, all right, I got to get better here. I got the feedback, but I'm willing to work and, and continue trying to improve. What was it about rugby that attracted you to it? At the time, it was available, right? It was something I could do. It wasn't like I could go pick up a lacrosse stick that I'd never played before and, and figure that out. But I knew I wanted to play a sport. Parts of it made sense. You know, growing up, you've watched football. We all have, right? You've watched football. I played soccer. Conceptually, the way you spread the field isn't that dissimilar to soccer. The way you're trying to work to space wasn't dissimilar. And the hitting was interesting to me. Like, I liked it. And, you know, it was one of those things, retrospectively, you look back and you say, well, maybe I should have played football in high school, or maybe I should have done this because I like this hitting so much. It would have been a lot of fun. I like the contact. But, you know, it was also just the people on the team. Like, we had the best group of guys. It was from end of freshman year through senior year. It was tons of fun, just relationships that I've still maintained to this day. And so it was a lot of different factors, but it was the opportunity to compete. At the end of the day, you know, I think we're all, you know, as athletes, you know, and whenever somebody retires, you see Bill Belichick got let go today. 
he's still looking for the opportunity to compete and he's 71 years old. You know, at 19, when you lose the opportunity to compete in a real organized sport, I think there's there's a decent amount of drive that if you're willing to work for it, you can find somewhere else to do it. Well, and that speaks volumes about you. I mean, that talks about you and and your inner drive, your competitiveness, your compassion for being connected to something and, and to winning. Before we started recording, we were talking about skiing, we are talking about golfing. How competitive on the golf course are you? It depends. I can play with anybody and I can get super competitive. So it just depends. I ramp up my golf game depending on who I'm playing with. I love to golf so much that for me, I like to be out there. But I play golf because of the competitive situations. It just, I am fully aware of who I'm playing with. So you know, to me, it's I really enjoy the company aspect of it. I have learned over the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, how much I truly enjoy competing with like golfers or, or leveraging ha- the handicap system to be able to do it. But, you know, at the same time, I've, I've also grown that like, I'm not going to get impatient when I get placed with a bad golfer or any of that stuff to me, then that's about meeting somebody and enjoying the time and understanding that like, that's not going to be today from a competitive standpoint. So how much is that awareness? So this is where I'm going, I'm kind of taking a little bit of a longer road than I thought to, to get it, but how much is that competitiveness and that awareness? contribute to your incredibly massive success in the business world and what you do? Well, I think it's understanding your situation. You know, to me, it's understanding that if somebody gets paired with me on a golf course and they're not that good, they're super uncomfortable. And I'm not going to benefit my experience by making them further uncomfortable by trying to get it super competitive. And I want that to be a fun experience for them. I want to enjoy that because, you know, at the end of the day, that's also going to be a place where I get to disconnect at least to some degree. And just focus on my game. So if I'm playing a day where I have, you know, I'll play with Suzanne every once in a while, who's a, who's learning how to golf. I play with uh, a number of friends and, and their significant others with a significant others learning how to play. In that scenario, I think it's really just, I'll just work on my game at that time. That'll be like practice time. And then nobody feels that stress of trying to compete if they don't want it. And if they want to compete, like then it's on. And so that's yeah. the fun part about golf. You can kind of look at it both ways. When you correlate that, though, we'll go back to like the, the awareness of a competitive nature and your ability to learn new things, right? Yep. The agility, the flexibility, the adaptability. I'm just going back on, on everything you've done. And to bring that into the business world and your journey getting to Genesis Health and, and, and everything that you've done, it just take us through like how that started to show up in the business world, especially when you started to lead people. Well, I think the, the core of this came from my dad. So my dad growing up, was about respect, but it wasn't just about like respect that you earn. It was about respect that you give and that everybody that you meet deserves that respect. And that was kind of a core. And when I got into sales, I remember my dad telling me like, when you walk into a building, the janitor of that building should feel as happy as the CEO of whoever you're meeting with in that building. And they should feel as welcomed by you and you should be communicating with them the same way. And that was not about situ awareness. It's about just your treatment of people. It was always a big learning experience because I'd walk in anywhere with my father and people revered him and not for it was just because he was kind he was a good person he was successful but he it was how he treated people so some of that was trying to emulate the way he was treating people and then i think when you factor that into business i believe that you can be successful you can be kind you can treat people with respect and you can still accomplish great things and all of those aren't mutually exclusive from one another and so i think a lot of it's understanding the situation you're in so like when you're asking about like the golf course with a competitive like it it's important to be competitive. I am super competitive. So I don't want to, I don't want to show that or state that I'm not, mm-hmm. but my competitive, my competitive nature is situational in that I want to win, but you got to win the right way. You got to 
you got to compete the right way. And to me, like the competition side of it is about working hard. It's about putting in the time and doing everything you can to make something happen and, and achieve your goals. But at the same time, you know, you'll never be successful if you're stepping on other people, if you're not doing the right thing for your clients, if you're not empathetic to what other people have going on in their lives at the time that you're communicating with them. Because whatever your goal is, other people have to be involved, whether they're the buyer, whether they're the people who are going to service the account, whether it's, if you're not taking them into consideration, then you're really only worried about yourself. And that is at some point just going to crash and burn. That's always been my experience. And I think that lends to my next question. How important, I mean, you're very values-based, right? How important is it, whether it's an incredibly adverse situation or you know, a moment of extreme success and a huge win for you. How important is it to stay connected to your values? And how do you do it? How do you stay every every time your name comes up, every time I see you or we talk, there's a certain presence and calmness about you, right? Then there's a certain conviction that you operate with and it goes back to doing the right thing. But how is it that you do that? Because I, I think some of us, so many of us, we don't forget our values or betray our values. And I think we have Sometimes our values are competing against each other. They're conflicted in, in certain moments. How is it you keep all that straight? One of my favorite things to tell my son when we're talking about sports or when he scores a goal or something is to, like act like you've been there before. And I believe business is the same thing. Like you get a big deal, you got to act like you've actually been there before. You should have been there before. You know, and if you haven't been there before, you got to act like you've been there before. If you got one, then there's another one to be had. To me, it's about pushing forward. So that's, you know, that is a win but you want to compound those wins. Like if you want greatness, you got to compound wins. It's not just about a win. And I think when you get down, it's the same thing. I've learned over time that from a perspective standpoint, usually when things get, when it feels like it's about as bad as it gets, if you're willing to push through that, generally it gets better. And not only does it get better, but it, it can drastically change. Assuming you've put in the work, assuming you haven't given up and assuming you've stayed positive. It's not always easy. I am positive by nature. I see I'm more glass half full than I ever am glass half empty. To me, it's a state of mind. Like you got to stay as even keeled as you can. And that's easier said than done, right? Like everybody kind of ebbs and flows. I just try and keep it within a range. Doesn't mean I don't celebrate wins because we do. You know, we do it at our company, but it's important to make sure that you main, maintain perspective because, you know, for every win, you could have a loss and, and you got to move forward. And it's about getting more wins and compounding those over time. That's what I really focus on, you know, with my team, especially when someone who's working for you as a win, it's important to celebrate that too. It's a delicate balance, Ed, to be honest with you. And I wrestle with that. If I were to ask you, what is the thing that you do different? What's the thing that sets you apart from everybody else? Okay. What makes you so, so special, such an effective, such a high impact coaching leader? What is it? And now knowing your humility, okay. And now Suzanne's listening to this, she might be laughing, but knowing your humility, you might say, well, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk about myself, but what would someone say? You know what? Matt Monahan. This is what Matt is better at than anybody else. Or this is where Matt really is elite. I think where I've prided myself in my business journey has been my ability to build relationships in a relatively short period of time. And it's one thing to say I built relationships, but I think where I look at that is they've been meaningful relationships. Many of them have transcended now going on decades, multiple decades. You know, And I think to me, that's something that I've prided myself on. I not only want to build those relationships and those connections, I want to be able to deliver on the promises I made to those relationships that I've developed. And you know, I want to make sure I do the right thing for those people and I help them with what I committed to. But where I've been most proud and the thing that I've loved the most was as I transitioned into my role at Genesis and prior when I was at Aetna, 
I was building roles with people that I'm now competing with. And, you know, I'm still meeting those people for lunch. We're still sharing ideas. We're still connected. And I'm proud of that because, you know, one, when you transition to competitor, you can, that can go one of two ways. And the fact that we've been able to maintain that competitive balance and, and communicate and still be friends and still share insights and, and all those things speaks to the value of what I built. And those relationships were built over a number of years. So that's something I, if you were to ask some of my old counterparts or bosses, that's something I think they would say was my ability to build those relationships was something that set me apart in what I did back during those, those years. And what you just said, man, I mean, it's really special when you think about it, right? And I think this is one of the things when I work with younger leaders, some of their internal battles or some of their battles with other folks in the industry, relationships, first of all, the single grade, they're, they're the best, right? I mean, yeah. meaningful relationships pour so much value to others' lives, to your life, and, and they're so significant. But I think sometimes we get so caught up in, in the rat race or trying to succeed at the highest level that we move on. I don't want to even use the word burn bridges, but we don't recognize the value in the relationship when that might show up again in our career, when that might show up again in our life. How many, and not how many times, but have you seen relationships come full circle where 10 years later, maybe it's someone you never had the opportunity to do business with, but you you kept the relationship, you stayed in touch, you you kept the friendship, and all of a sudden there's an opportunity to work together or to take on a special project. I mean, have you seen that show up in your world? Yeah, I can say personally, I've seen that show up a couple of times. And I can tell you that, you know, the people that I had met at that time, which was earlier in my career, whether I stayed connected with them or I followed them or I saw them along the way, but we interacted periodically where it was actually very interesting to be able to call them in, in multiple instances. My preconceived notion of what they could do to help me or how I could help them or vice versa was actually skewed and was incorrect and made me think about like, maybe you weren't thinking about this properly at that time. And conversely, I would tell you like some of the biggest failures that I believe I had in my career, which specifically around relationships, it was two specific relationships where I felt like I retrospectively could have done better for those people and helped them in a way that I didn't. And I feel like, you know, that impacted the relationship we had and over time that eroded. And that's something I think about all the time. Like I hated that feeling. I hated how it felt for them. And how can I fix that going forward? Like, what can I communicate differently? How could I communicate differently? How could they communicate? Like, what could we do to have avoided, you know, watching those relationships deteriorate? Because for any successful relationship we have, like the ones that you fail on is the one you think about. I think the people that you keep in touch with and you're willing to continue to engage with over time, especially in the business space, you just never know where you're going to need somebody or where they're going to need you and, and how that's going to align. And things change so quickly over time, you know, especially nowadays that. I found that to be a really a really cool experience for me to to engage someone that I was like I didn't think we'd ever work together. And while we're here in this moment, talk about building meaningful relationships and your ability to connect with different types of people, I have to ask. I'm going to plead with you to tell the story. You had an incredible job in college that lends itself to working with others, to building relationships, to understanding where people are coming from, what makes them tick, but also get them to see things a different way. And maybe even get them to watch Jeopardy. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Wait, can you share that story with us? I, I find it, and maybe it's a little trivial on my part, but I find it so fascinating that you did that. And I look at who you are now and how you operate, and I absolutely see an alignment there. Well, I think that if, if I'm remember, remembering the story correctly that we talked about, it was when I was bartending at a, a bar in Connecticut outside of Quinnipiac, where, we went, where Suzanne and I both went to college. It was a biker bar by day, and I was brought in to turn the bar over into college kids at night. And I forget which night it was, but it was a a dead night. It was a rainy night. 
I had one shift early in the week. So like a Monday or Tuesday. And then I had another shift on like a Thursday or a Friday. And on that Tuesday night, it was raining. And one of the bikers got stuck in the rain and came in and threw the door open. And at the time, there was no one in there. So I was watching Temptation Island, which was that they'd take the couple. That's what it was. Yeah, I'm sorry. It It wasn't Jeffrey. My bad. No, it was definitely not Jeopardy. But they they would take the couples and split them apart and set up islands. And so I'm much more fun than Jeopardy, by the way. Yeah, it was just I'll never forget because I was I was watching this just like it was the first night it was on. There was no sports on in it was in that dead time between like NCAA basketball finishing and baseball starting. There was just nothing. And the guy comes in, he says, turn this off. I'd never seen him before. He's soaking wet. Looked like he had a horrible day. And I was like, listen, I'm not shutting this off, but if you want to sit down, I'll, I'll buy you, you know, his dollar Budweiser or something back then. I was like, I'll buy you Budweiser for the night. Cause it looks like your day is worse than mine. He was soaking wet. Yeah. And so he did And his name was Gary. And I'll never forget. Like he started, you know, we started talking and we kind of found this, like, you know, we started laughing about the show and yeah. so he came in the next week and, you know, then he started, you know, he, this time he's buying beers and some people came in and they were like, you got to change the channel. Gary's like, we don't change the channel off Temptation Island. And then over time. Now he's your guy. Now he has your back. Right? Now he had my back. But the <laughs> best was my favorite part of that story was the last two weeks of the show. My boss came to me. He's like, what is happening on these Tuesday nights? And he was like, what is this drink special? I'm like, oh, we're doing kamikazes and Budweiser's for a dollar. It's Temptation Island night. And he's like, who's here? Like, did you bring in a bunch of college kids? I'm like, no, it's me and like 30 bikers. You should see it. Come in. And so it was the first time I realized I want to get into sales. It was just funny watching how that turned. And it turned out Gary became one of like, he would stick around. He became one of the the bikers that like, you know, helped us with the transition. And he was a great guy. And uh, I'll never forget how funny that was though. Like his face when I first told him and then like how he transitioned into like the keeper of Temptation Island night for the next six or seven. I mean, that's a movie right there. Or at least a a TV series, right? I mean, that's, (laughs) yeah. What in God's name was it that made you say no to him when he asked you to turn a TV off? You had every excuse in the world to say, that's fine. I'll turn it off. No, I mean, I, I don't know. Because if you, what I, when you're bartending, you can't give like that. You don't get, you know, you have, you want to, you know, you want to be polite. You want to serve people and, and do all those things. But there's some semblance of control that you have to maintain. Otherwise, people feel like they have some sort of power or authority over you. And I think it's important that, you know, no is not the worst thing that can happen in the business world. Like, you know, sometimes saying no gives you a degree of authority where you can, the next question can be the yes. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, if you don't say no, there's never a compromise because you never, you never actually had a stance. And so I think in that scenario, it was kind of like my instinct was, I didn't care truly at that point, if I was watching Temptation Island or not, it just, if I gave in at that point, then like, you know, what's he going to tell me to do next? And so to me, like, is it, you have to have a foundation of like, you're not going to tell me how this is going to operate. You know, I'm in charge of this bar tonight, but it looks like your day stinks. And that's kind of where you look at like situational awareness. Like what was happening that guy's day was he just got soaked in March driving on a motorcycle and got stuck in a puddle. So like, how can you fix that? You talk about the word no. Not only does no sometimes set boundaries, but I think more significantly in a little bit on a more positive note, it points you in the direction of where you need to go to make things work. It, it, yeah. You know, there's a collaboration, right? Like, no, this, that's not the way it's going to be. That's not the way it's... And, and saying no to... That's something obviously we know, you know, saying no to this, saying yes to something else. But I think it gets you going in the right direction. As you build up Genesis and what you all the work you've done, right? The decision making process and, and um, I don't want to use the word shiny objects, you've been in the industry for so long. What was your method? What was your strategy for staying focused on the task at hand 
while keeping your compelling vision in front and center as well? Well, I think our driving force is trying to disrupt healthcare, which is a big job, right? And there's a lot of moving parts in a lot of different places. So you can kind of get lost in that. We are trying to change the way people view and receive um, healthcare and purchase healthcare for their employees. But at the same time, at the center of that is, is trying to figure out how to best service and, and impact our clients, their employees, and the, all those people that we're serving. Our grounding force, I think, is is the people that are already partnered with us, that are already you know breaking glass and doing things differently in the marketplace. And then you have to kind of keep one eye on that, and the other is moving forward, trying to figure out like how can we disrupt this further? How can we create further savings in the marketplace for our clients? You know, how can we change the experience of you know somebody who has to go to the hospital and make it more seamless so that that employee doesn't lose half a day just trying to figure out how to cover the bills or where they should be going for care or even just helping people get healthier. When you say disrupt healthcare, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, there's a, you have the big four, you know, the Aetna, the Cigna, the UHC, and, you know, different blues throughout the United States. And I think one of the biggest challenges is they always talk about healthcare trend and cost is going up. And I actually think healthcare trend is more about people accepting the status quo, deferring decisions, and not being willing to change and do things differently than what they were doing last year. And, you know, every year from a healthcare standpoint, clients throughout the, not our clients, but clients throughout the United States will get renewals and they'll say, you know, anywhere from eight to 20%, which from a financial standpoint on a company's bottom line could be anywhere, depending on the size of the company, could be hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars. And the amount of waste that's going into that, just doing the same thing people did last year or making nominal changes for the sake of changing it is not improving the employee experience. And it's a significant amount of money people are spending upwards of $13,000 per employee. To me, it's mind boggling. So what we're trying to do is break that cycle. We're trying to figure out, you know, and not trying to figure out, we have figured out a lot of different ways of improving access to care, which controls the underlying cause. We've built 15 clinics throughout the United States with a partner, put in medical deserts for our clients that have people who have issues getting to the doctor because they're too far from a hospital. And even for companies in urban areas where by putting that in place, you're creating a direct line of care. You're helping people get easier access to medicine. You know, it's easier to get certain things under control, like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, all of which hurt the bottom line of any company. And how can we simplify that process? How can we make it easier? And then there's any number of other levers, whether it's evaluating PBMs. And, and that's where we talked about with Suzanne, right? Like the pharmaceutical industry and, and how that aligns with things they're doing and, and trying to figure out like, where can we make an impact, direct contracting from a network so that you can get cheaper discounts than what the networks have available. So there's a lot of different levers, but we're really just trying to figure out and work constantly on how can we save these employers money without eroding the benefits that they're already offering those employees? And how do we make that experience better for employees? Because in our world, that's there's kind of like those two things. HR is looking to improve that employee experience, retain talent. CFOs are looking to figure out like how they can stop the bleeding because nine to 10% is more expensive than anything else they're buying on a consistent basis. So you mentioned the big four. Why did you get here? Like, how did you get to the disruption piece to the boutique firm that's doing such amazing work and shaking things up? I loved my time. And I say, you know, disrupt all this stuff. You know, the my time at Aetna was not a bad time. I had a blast. I loved it. I loved the people I worked with. One of the things that I found most frustrating was I felt like in those roles, whether it was the innovation labs I was invited into or different strategy discussions, those companies don't lack creativity. They lack the ability to get that creativity to market. You know, I think by the time the idea comes up to the time that it gets to market, 
it's been watered down or its efficiency is less or it's been touched by too many people. And it just, it becomes more challenging to get whatever they're trying to create is their change to market. And I think being in a company that is smaller, nimble, and really focused, laser focused on, you know, one or two specific things allows us the ability to impact that change quicker, enact those ideas. You know, the other part of it is once that gets to market, I'll use that as the example. One of the things they've looked at was, you know, rolling out the similar to what we've done with the clinics, but they're doing it in CVS. And I think, you know, the the experience of going into a doctor's office within your company, your manufacturing facility or something like that, where it's a dedicated doctor to you, he knows you, he knows your Ed Molitor and he knows what's going on. And you've spoken to them before versus going to see someone at a CVS, walking through the Fritos aisle and everybody else is there. Like to me, that's not a great experience. And that's not what the average person wants. And so, you know, it doesn't feel customized. And I think that's where that solution, while it's the right track, is probably too watered down for what the market really is looking for. I think people want convenience, but they still want the experience to be positive. They're not willing to give on the experience portion of it. So how can we create that alignment? And that's part of what drove me to leave and go out into the consulting world, because I think it allows us to put into flight the changes that I think need to happen. And if we're going to continue to disrupt and make this better, it's not going to happen through the carriers. It's going to have to happen with people like us that are trying to break this class. What's really interesting about it is there's really no end game, right? It's a con- constant evolution. You don't know how things are going to look six months, 12 months, 18 months from now. Talk about your team's ability to navigate those waters, to be able to understand like the rules of the game, right? The boundaries that you're inside of. Yeah, tap into that creative collaboration piece. I think for us, it's about change. You know, one of the things we talk about, even in our values, we're change agents, right? Like this stuff has changed, you know, a hundred times. It changes with different presidencies, you know, and it doesn't matter political establishment, you know, whoever you're aligned to, political alignment, it's always changing. Transparency laws, you know, have changed. They changed under the last administration. The previous administration put in, you know, the ACA framework. And, you know, at each one of those, it's it's been interesting because the industry would lobby in different directions, but they've all to some degree had positive impact, but it's about being nimble. And it's about, you know, there's an education component, you know, and there's a work ethic component because it's hard to keep up with. There's a lot of moving parts at all times. Communication across the team is paramount. So how do we talk to each other? It's about, you know, mutually training each other, you know, also someone hears, you know, of a change that they got through a communication that they received or a conversation that they've had. Those are things that were always about keeping the others abreast on. And it doesn't matter your position in a company, especially in something at our size. Like to me, like growth is a contact sport and it's it's everyone's involved. And I think it's the same thing when you look at compliance and change. Everybody's having different conversations. It'd be a shame not to leverage those conversations, you know, for whatever they are over any of the topics. So those are really important. I mean, communication is paramount across everything from a leadership perspective to how you just interact with people on a day-to-day basis, how and what you communicate and how you listen are fundamental to any sort of success. I'm going to go back to something you just said that I love. Growth is a contact sport, right? We only know that you grow through discomfort. You only grow through complexity. It's almost baked in for you based on what you do. Like That complexity is almost something that's given to you on every single day. How do you as a leader, though, find a way to challenge people that are working on complex situations to get better, right? In other words, to, to look at things from a different way, even though things are being thrown at them and change is happening and change is occurring. I don't want to say stuck in our, our way of viewing things, but the ability to reframe situations and to reframe policy, to reframe things of that nature. I believe change is an opportunity, right? And it's an opportunity for anyone, but not everybody believes in change. So to me, like step one is understanding how people handle change. 
and every individual has a different view of change. You know, some people recoil, some people look at it as a wonderful thing and there's everything in between. So to me, step one is just understanding how your team, who on your team adapts to change. But I think it's also about discussing it. You know, this is a change, you know, here's what it looks like, but it's about the communication aspect of it. And I think that transcends just change, but the communication, how you talk about it in the light that you put on it, something may be a change. It may feel negative at the time, but to me, it's about talking through the change, how it's going to impact us and then developing a plan going forward. I like the solution and Suzanne would argue probably too much. I like two solutions. So I think to me, I see change. It's just like, what's the path to the new solution? It's not like, it's a new road. It's not that the road is crowded. And so I think it's just really understanding how people view change and then working from there. I do remember that point in the conversation. You and I are in the same boat. Like we want to solve things right now, right? Like, no, we need closure now. Yeah. And then we move on to the next thing, right? I can relate to that. It doesn't always work out that way for us, though, does it? (laughs) Can you just share with us a little bit? Because I think this is really important in terms of the evolution of our careers. And when you get to be, I mean, and you're young, okay? And I do not want to put you in my category in terms of age, but when you get to be a little bit older, when you turn to a little bit more senior in terms of, years of experience. So experience, you have the ability to, to reverse engineer your career and what worked and what didn't work and decisions you made, moves that you made, relationships you developed. When you look at your move from, from Atna to Genesis and what got you there, I know there's a lot more involved, right? There's, there's human relationships involved. Can you share that with us? Because it's not always linear. It's not always clean. The timing isn't always right. But how did you get to this point in your career? Because it's a really cool place. I was given the opportunity coming out of Aetna to go to a company called, called Namely. And at that time, I was given the opportunity to be their national practice leader from a consulting perspective. And it was one of those phone calls where at the time, it was a fast-growing tech-based startup you know, focused in my business. They needed someone to help, help scale their consulting business. And it was, it was almost like impossible to pass up. Whether it worked or it didn't was irrelevant to me at that point. What I knew was the experience would be invaluable. And it was. In all facets of it, it was fun, scary, challenging, and an acid bath, like all in the same time. And then, you know, from there, I learned the like how to scale a business. You know, we grew the consulting revenue 6x, how to scale that business, how to hire fast, you know, how to fail fast. And but at the same time, it gave a lot of exposure to different business situations what it looks like and feels like to be in that fast growth company. And from there, one of the challenges we had though, was over time, we had three or four, I think it was three, maybe four CEOs over my time. I reported into three of the four, but it was almost like I got to a place where I'm almost interviewing for my job on a quarterly basis. And to me, moving to Genesis was about finding people that I could trust that were innovative, that wanted to continue to break glass. And, And our two founders, Karen and Tanya, were those two people. Karen and I actually started General Electric together. We had met, she was the first person I met at, at group school, which is the initial training program at that time. By the way, one of the best stories, we, we don't need to retell it, but go to episode 180 if you didn't have a chance to listen to it, because it is a phenomenal story about that, how you met. <laughs> but I wanted to align myself with people who shared my values and see people that, that wanted to go out and change the business and break glass. And they were already doing it. They had pioneered you know, the, the onsite clinic you know, model for a number of their clients that was, you know, very new in the industry. And they started doing that around 2012. That wasn't even talked about, you know, at Aetna until like 2019, 2020. So I give you an idea of how far ahead they were. And they were good people and they were people I could trust. And so to me, it was about, I want to go do this. I want to go have fun. And being in a smaller company where you have flexibility and the ability to like solution the way that you and I like to, right? That to me is 
is the dream. And to do that with two people that you know and trust is it can't be better. So that was that was what led me to go there. It was the personal relationships that I had in the trust that I had with them, in the respect that I had for the concept that they were developing, and the fact that I believed that there were some things that I could help build out and add from a technology perspective after what I'd seen for the previous three years. So a lot of opportunity. You're an incredibly resilient person. Okay. And you talk about when you talk about Genesis, you talk about where you're at now and the fun that you're having. But you've been through adversity and you've been through challenges both personally and professionally. How important is it to wake up every day knowing you enjoy what you do and who you do it with in terms of contributing to your resilience as a leader? You want to enjoy what you're doing. And so that's a big part of it. But I think the part I enjoy about what I'm doing, I'm pretty convinced when you talk about like thinking about your career retrospectively, I could have been selling a lot of different things. It didn't have to be insurance. But I think the part that I liked about this was it allowed me to build relationships. It allowed me to develop a subject matter expertise. But I think I would have done that across anything. I think it's you also have to have that state of mind where you got to kind of commit to, I'm going to engage this. I'm going to give this everything I have. And, and people always say you want to do what you're passionate about. But I think you develop, not everybody can go out there and like play the guitar and that's their passion and make a living on it. But you can develop a passion for something because whether you're good at it, whether you care about it, or whether you decide I'm going to care about it, and you make that decision and you go from there. And I think some of that's what I did because I think back to 24-year-old me and I wasn't like, wow, this insurance stuff is super cool. But I understood it and I wanted to get better at it. And instead of focusing on like, what could I do besides this? It was like, how do I get better at this and just keep doubling down on that? And so over time, my happiness grew as I got better at it, as I developed those relationships and were able to use the other skill sets that I like. But I think you can do that across any number of things. But my passion for this was, as I saw, like you can help people, you can build relationships, you can make an impact. And all of those things are things that I like. But that passion was developed. It wasn't like, an initial passion for this. Where did all this come from? Like, Who had the biggest impact on you, Matt? Career-wise? Career-wise, but let's even go a step further. Who influenced your thinking? Understanding what's significant, understanding what's important. It's interesting. I would say over, with a shout out to Suzanne, some of it was Suzanne, like, you know, she is hardwired to do the right thing at all mm -hmm. times. And she has given me really good insight into stating some of what I had thought historically, you know, before that it was my parents, you know, in all of that, my dad was always about doing the right thing, always about working hard. Jobs he had put me in were anything from painting fire hydrants and speed bumps. I worked for the DPW cleaning sewers, construction as a laborer. So, I mean, I was in it all and he loved seeing me come home filthy and tired and all of that. And then you know, I would say professionally, there's been a couple different mentors, people like the person who hired me out of college was a guy named Mark Duran, who was a fantastic leader, Joanne Doyle of Reliance and, and Steve Logan, to name a couple people, Michelle Butman and Dan Burkhart were some people that impacted me along the way. And I think, honestly, there was a ton of teammates that, you know, would be unlisted, but people that I learned from just by watching or that mentored me and you know, a big part of being successful is people aren't going to reach out to mentor you. You have to force your way into it. Companies might say you're going to mentor this guy and, and they may, some people may take it seriously, most don't. But to develop a mentor means you have to engage somebody and you got to get their engagement back and you got to keep their attention, which is hard. And, you know, I've had a, a number of mentors over time that I learned from. And, and some mentors aren't people you have relationships with, it's just people you watch and the what to do, what not to do. You know, you have good mentors, you can have bad ones. But those were other areas of that for me. When you're interviewing someone, Genesis is interviewing someone, or in the past when you've been interviewing someone, how do you figure it out? How do you figure out that they have that, that they have 
what it takes in terms of some people use, call them soft skills. I call them power skills, right? They have the resilience, they have the energy, they have the purpose, they have the sense of passion. You know, how do you all of a sudden click and be like, you know what, they're going to do the right thing. How do you get to that? It's hard at times, you know, especially in this day and age with interviewing, right? Because you're, some of it's virtual, some of it's in person and that gets tougher. There are certain things that I look for in people. And I like to talk to people. I feel like you can learn a lot from conversations. I have some specific questions that I like to ask that I like to drill down on. But a lot of it to me is, you know, what they did in their past from a job standpoint. I don't mean like, you know, were you the number one sales rep at one company? You're coming over here. It was like, what did you do when you weren't successful? Like, what was your job then? You know, what were you doing when you were just going through college? How are you making ends meet? Or did you have to make ends meet? And there's nothing wrong with kids that were fortunate enough to not have to work like that, mm-hmm. you know, and or didn't have to earn extra money or didn't have to do anything. And, you know, I was blessed to grow up in a town and, and with the parents that my dad made me do those things. And it was fantastic learning experiences. But I love like people in the service industry, because if you've been in the service industry, you have been through the gauntlet, no matter what. That was everything. You Everybody. 10 people dinner. 10% of that group, those people are going to get pissed for some reason or another. It's just going to happen. And so I love the problems of solving skills mm-hmm. that come with the service industry, you know, whether it's food and beverage or, or otherwise. I think, you know, those are things that I like in people, but I really look for problem solving skills. I really look for people who are hungry and looking to learn. And I think a lost art is the follow up to people who reconnect with you after the meeting, uh, whether it's a handwritten note or whether it's an email, but even referencing things that you talked about. Those are some skills that I think have kind of been lost as time has gone on. But to me, those are the things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who have empathy, want to communicate, and aren't scared to try and push their way in and want to fight and kick the door open. Yeah, I love that. Now, you mentioned something, and I have to ask, okay? The handwritten note. Suzanne is amazing at the handwritten note, right? Like, that's her thing. And she told a wonderful story on episode 180 about when you went to President's Club and she presented you with a handwritten note. What is it like to have the ability to be married to someone who has a mindset like that and to be able to have those conversations and to be able to share things? And I'm going back a little bit to our conversation. And how much do you take away from her? Does she take away from you when it goes back to these things that we're talking about that you look for in the interview, the little things, the intangibles, forget the X's and O's, right? And the blocking and tackling of the job. What are those moments like? I mean, it's kind of got to be pretty cool whether you show it or not, or what it's like on the exterior, when Suzanne writes all these thousands of handwritten notes, but then she realizes at the President's Club that you have a lot to do with everything, as you do her as well. What was that moment like? That was pretty emotional. I won't lie. It was really cool to watch her give those out. And then I wasn't expecting it. Honestly, like I, I thought her hand was going to fall off You know, with the amount of writing she was doing for the span of the week. But it was just, it's super thoughtful. And it's funny because I referenced the handwritten note, not thinking of that, because that was something I was taught coming into the business world. And we've both taken different things from each other, but it was also interesting as our careers have developed that there was a lot of things that we were mutually aligned on that we didn't take from the other. We just both kind of did as well. That card was extremely special um, and is still stashed in the back of my closet. So it was one of those things you won't forget. And it was very tough not to cry in front of a large room of people. Which would be okay. If you did, right? I wasn't scared of it. It was just, you know, at the same time, I was trying to just move on. <laughs> hey, that might have been her intent. No, she is so genuine and so sincere. Hey, I feel blessed, honestly, getting to know you two and spending as much time as I, I have with you and, and continuing to build this friendship. We have to talk about your podcast. So we have to talk about the creative work that you're doing from the standpoint of what you're putting out there, the work that you do. Um, can you just share a little bit about that? 
Yeah, it started, honestly, we were having different vendors and partners come in and, and we're having some really interesting conversations and dating back, it went even to different members of the Amazon team when they were launching Amazon Care was coming in. We were meeting with the product team to talk about putting something together. And I was like, if we could just bottle this and bring this to market. So our podcast was kind of born under the idea of we're having these conversations anyway. We should, Let's actually start recording these and see where they can go. They're interesting. They're fun. Or at least they're interesting and fun to insurance nerds like me. But how can we try and build content in a way that people can see the fun that we're having, they can see the work we're doing, and they can understand in a far better manner than expecting them to read some white paper or something that's out there in like a case study format. That's where it was born. I think we've done six so far. We're in the process of kind of getting everything going. My studio closed in the middle of it all, which was kind of a hiccup. But we are in the process of we've relaunched and we got a number of episodes coming out over the next two months and we're excited. I love the medium. It's so much fun and it just, it allows you to connect with people. And we'll put a link in your show notes to cool. the podcast. Okay. We'll get all that stuff in the show notes and have it, have a direct link. It's fantastic. And the work that you do is fantastic. You know, I didn't ask you this. Where are you producing the podcast at? Where are you hosting it? Out of New York city, uh, Gotham podcast studios. You are. Okay. So you're at Gotham studios. Yeah. Amazing people at Gotham. That's where, yeah, that's that's where yeah. they've been fantastic. That was where we filmed. And so I've, that's right. I love the room. I love the space. And, and they're just really, really good people. They've been super supportive yeah. as we've gotten going. That's great. Well, hey, I appreciate you being here and taking the time. I know how busy your schedule is and how busy your world is. Before I ask you the last question, tell us more about where folks can find out more about you, Genesis, all of that. Where can they, can they find you on LinkedIn? Yeah, Matthew Mane on LinkedIn, and then we're www.genesis.health. We are here to help in any way, shape, or form. I appreciate the time. This was it was awesome to get to see you again. It is. I know. We, feel we got this thing called the computer in front of us, though, right? I know. I mean, that's what you're doing. It's, it's technology is a beautiful thing. We're going to make it happen again out in Gotham it's Podcast Studios. Though. I'm going to get back out there, and we'll we'll spend some time cutting it up a little bit. Nobody told me though that they're going to be able to see the fact that I was wearing low-cut socks with dress shoes when we recorded. So we need to make sure the camera's up a little bit higher than it was last time. That was a lot of work for our video editor on that one, okay? It needs to be really simplified just wore dress socks. I don't know. I really, really, really appreciate everything. I'm going to ask you this question because I think it connects to everything we talked about, doing things the right way, right? And doing them the right reasons. When you're faced with adverse situations and you're faced with the opportunity to take, and I don't want to call it the easy way out, I want to call it the path of least resistance. And it might compromise a little bit about of the way that you do things. So how do you find it in yourself to do the right thing, to maybe take a short-term punch in the face, knowing that in the long game, knowing that it's going to play out and your people will be okay and you're doing the best thing for your clients, et cetera. What is your whole thought process behind that? That's uh, interesting. When I was at Namely, we had a technology that was the platform that we leveraged and it was it was fine. It wasn't great. And as we were scaling, you know, our consulting services were dependent upon it because we were selling that with our product, but there was a lot of hiccups in the way we were doing things. So initially you're like, how do we fix this? How do we go about work with the product team? And everybody was engaged. And this was something that got fixed or improved over time. But with that, there was a tremendous amount of kickback from clients and partners. And one of the lessons I learned, I don't know, maybe like day four was you can't shy away from taking the call. Like the problem is going to snowball if you don't address it. And I think, you know, when people are mad, people hear yelling and they get nervous, right? It's conflict. And most people shy away from that conflict. To me, it's not about running to the conflict. It's about like understanding the situation that that person's in. Like you've created stress in their life and that now that's kind of like falling back on you. 
But meeting that head on as quickly as possible and providing that response, one, builds credibility and two, just it speaks to doing the right thing. Like there's a problem. I sold this or someone sold this. We're here to fix it. We will be with you every step of the way. May not be perfect, but we will solve that. And I think to me, it's about what I've learned over time is that if you shy away from that engagement or that conflict or that moment, you're going to shy away from everything because it's just what's the next most challenging thing. You'll shy away from that. Like you have to meet that where it's happening. And if you don't, it's just going to snowball from there. And vice versa. If you do it a certain way, repeatedly, consistently, that's going to become a habit as well. Yeah, I agree. Matt, thank you so much, man. I, I appreciate you joining again. We'll see you in New York again soon. Thank you for listening to the athletics of business. Be sure to give us a rating and review. So we know how we're doing for more information about the show. Visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness.